Today's episode is a hard one for me, because it's about one of my favorite films of all time. And, you know, that makes sense. The movies we love the most usually strike a chord very deeply in us that never really makes sense. And even when we continue to watch this movie over and over again, we still seem to experience the same joy or catharsis or release or whatever emotion that film evokes over and over and over again. It's like an old friend that you're still trying to figure out. And to be honest, this is one of those films that I know backwards and forwards. I could tell you movie lines from any scene, even the ones that are sort of throwaway. And so throughout this episode, I'm going to do that. A, because this is not part of public domain, therefore I can't afford any sound effects or any movie clips from it. B, because I just love it so much. But let's get to the reason why I love it. Because it delves into something that I'm the most afraid of. Welcome to The Stories We Tell, a podcast about the way we read movies and TV shows to determine the hidden truths behind them. My name is Casey Bacamini, and I will be your host. I love the ocean. It's my favorite place in the entire world. But I am deathly afraid of sharks. That fear keeps me from going too far out in the waves, keeps me from fully relaxing, from floating. Now, I have never seen a shark in the ocean. Statistically speaking, the chances of me encountering one are less likely than, you know, my encounter with a space alien, a bolt of lightning, or, you know, other people who live in Los Angeles dying from a firework accident. Yet, my fear of them is so much greater than seems reasonable. Why? Because a team of people, under the brilliant direction of a hungry filmmaker, came together to make the single greatest monster movie to ever grace the silver screen, with the single greatest marketing campaign, and the Oscar-winning score that defined terror in two notes. Today's episode of The Stories We Tell dives into the deep end of monsters by confronting the stories we're told about nature's need to be controlled by men, lest we be eaten alive. That's right. Today, we're traveling back to the year 1975 to uncover the real story of Jaws. The first lens I'd like us to use when thinking about Jaws is looking at the socio-economic dynamics at play in this film. These class dynamics help to get to the real story behind it. Take our setting. Our story takes place in the sleepy seaside town of Amity Island. Amity is a working class community with an economy based on tourism. Small business lines the beach streets of Amity in the hopes of attracting dollars from the rich island visitors. Gearing up for their high season, the communities are threatened when a young tourist is found shredded to pieces on the shores. Unwilling to face the consequences of economic despair, Chief Brody, a retired NYPD officer who's afraid of the water, is forced to keep the beaches open by the mayor. That is, until a child is killed during an all-swim, and Hooper, the Oceanographic Institute researcher who specializes in sharks, confirms, here comes that acting, this was no boating accident. It was a shark, a big one, a great white. Carcarius Carcaridon. Now, on an island full of fishermen, surely they could solve this themselves. Especially when Quint, a gruff ex-Navy man, announces himself at a pseudo-town hall meeting. Here comes the next bit of acting. 
you all know me. You know how I make a living. I'll find him for three, but I'll catch him and kill him for ten. Ten k to a community on the brink of collapse is too high a price to pay, so they wait. Try to employ the coast guard, but then the shark goes into the lagoon and kills a man in plain sight of Chief Brody's son. Well, it's go time. He forces the mayor to sign the purchase order for Quint, and off they go, supplied to the hilt with independently wealthy Hoopers, anti-shark tanks, and Quint's smug arrogance and years of experience. Ah yes, the SS Orca sets sail, cocked and ready to kill. You know, day one at sea, though, Chief Brody and the audience at the same time come face to face with the reality of Jaws. While chumming dead fish parts into the waters to draw it out, the great white crests its enormous head out of the sea, startling Brody and making him acutely aware of just how serious his predicament is. Dumbstruck by the creature, he retracts back into the cockpit of the vessel, announcing the now universal catchphrase when metaphorical shit is about to hit the fan, we're gonna need a bigger boat. But they don't have a bigger boat. They make do and try to take on the most ferocious symbol of mother nature a man could dream up, using all their tricks. In the end, only the rich man and police officer survive. They kick back to the beach on a makeshift floaty to rule again safely from land, diminished, but swimming. That's Jaws. If you're like, wow, that was a strange description of Jaws. Yeah, that's right, because that's really not the point that you get in the movie. There are many parts of Jaws that are fascinating to interpret, and you can use many, many licenses to do so. I think that what makes it my favorite, right? There are endless reads of what's happening, and more importantly, why the fear is so effective, which we'll go into now. We're gonna dive a little deeper into this, this fear, right? So this monster, which most argue is the greatest villain of all time, is nothing more than a shark. That's it. He swims and eats and makes baby sharks, and he only lives in the ocean. He doesn't appear in your dreams. He doesn't wield chainsaws. It isn't your father suffering from an isolation-induced psychotic break. Don't go into the water and you don't have a problem, right? Well, I'm not sure if you've really noticed in these past two years, but some people don't like being told what they can and can't do. We're human, the highest on the food chain. We can go anywhere, kill anything, and conquer, right? It's a story we tell ourselves, that humans are the highest on the food chain. But what happens when that supply chain runs thin? What then? In the 70s, the economic downturn of this country hit really quickly and lasted for generations. The tensions of the small businesses that you see in the film Jaws were universally felt during what historians call the Great Inflation. Many things contributed to this economic downturn, but mostly it was Nixon's delinking of America to the gold standard, which devalued American dollars worldwide. Also, under his leadership, it was the gross mismanagement of the Federal Reserve. Nixon wanted cheap money to keep businesses borrowing, thinking it would keep more people working. Elections rely on low employment numbers, and he got neither of those right, and the country experienced what economists called stagflation, a stagnation of job growth, and, uh, you know, meaning none, and inflation. Businesses had to increase prices to maintain profits, which made their goods more expensive than the influx of imports from countries like China. 
so people were buying less American goods. Couple that with union strikes over wages, socioeconomic upheaval, and the heavy price tag of the Vietnam War, and the country fell into a recession. The supply chain was getting lean, gas lines getting long, and right around the bicentennial, the future of the America that was once a promising nation looked grim. The federal government, as well as state and local leadership, had no means to bail out the people if capitalism failed. It's no wonder then that when a community was faced with extinction to make a choice, kill or be killed, they revert to their own story. Humans are the highest on the food chain, so they kill. Why? Because God forbid people rely on their government to provide for them. The mayor in the movie says quite clearly, without this summer's income, people will be using food stamps this winter, as if that's a bad thing. Like, that's why we have that program, to help people. And yet, countless times in this film, pride stands in the way. Man's pride in the face of reality? Better to risk additional lives for capitalism than use our rights to government assistance after unnatural occurrence disrupted one season of tourism. I'm going to take a moment and zoom in on one character that encapsulates this pride mentality, the rough-edged Captain Quint. It's never explicit about it, what exactly Quint does, but a quick scene in the boat shop prior to setting sail makes it clear. He's a hunter. He hunts sharks and sells their bones for profit. And that seems very matter-of-fact, right? This is not emotional, this is simply his chosen career path. Until we get to the part in Jaws where we get Quint's backstory. In one of the most famous monologues in movie history, Quint retells the horrific tale of a sailor aboard the USS Indianapolis, the ship carrying the remaining parts of the atom bomb that the U.S. dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. The secret mission was disrupted by a Japanese submarine who torpedoed the boat and sent 1,100 sailors into shark-infested seas. His tone is serious and somber. You hear the emotion crack in his voice. You know now that he's not some arrogant drunk captain who makes a living taking rich men out to hunt big fish. No, it's personal. He's out for revenge. But the fact seems lost on most people who watch the film. The entire ethos of the Jaws franchise places that thirst for vengeance on the shark, not the people hunting it. Jaws projects the traumas faced by these characters, like a depressed economy, the horrors of war, and what we ask our service members to endure, on a shark, and not the governments, corporations, and systems of power that created the circumstances they find themselves in. What happened on the USS Indianapolis was in fact a tragedy, but let's not overlook that so was the US's decision to drop atom bombs on Japan. There's a reason those men died out there, and it's because that was a secret mission and distress signals were ignored. Those men were left out there to die by their government. Now, Quint has every reason to be angry, but because he can't take it out on the government, he chooses Mother Nature instead. Notice, if you will, how the shark is characterized from the very first trailer. It begins in murky water, and you hear this voice of God narrator that goes, there's a creature that has existed for millions of years without change, without passion, without logic. It lives to kill, a mindless eating machine that will devour anything. It's as if God gave the devil and gave him jaws. Now, 
that's an oddly non-specific way to describe a shark, right? Like, don't animals, particularly omnivores, who literally eat anything, fit that description? Sharks don't eat anything. They eat fish and trash found in the sea. They don't, you know, instinctively attack humans, and when they do, it's often by accident. But that's not what makes shark movies so scary, right? It's not rational. There is fear in the ocean and what can eat us. And since we like being on top of the food chain, this fear has given way to a frenzy, and that frenzy removes our rationality. Therefore, our irrational fear of sharks has given license to some of the most horrendous atrocities carried out against them. For example, every year, 100 million sharks are killed in the commercial industry. 100 million. Like, one zero zero million. The average people, like the average number of people killed by sharks every year, is 10. 10 people. That means as humans, we have a 1 in 10 million chance of dying from a shark attack. Yes, it is slightly higher if you're a daily swimmer in Australia, Florida, or Northern California, but barely. And I mean like barely. Sharks are an evolutionary masterpiece. As the trailer suggests, they eat, swim, and make baby sharks. They haven't evolved in millions of years because they haven't needed to. Yet, they've watched their oceans get warmer, their food supply get completely depleted, their water get filthier and more polluted, and their population dwindled through the slaughter of this animal for their highly coveted films. In the film Jaws, you see the brutality of dying by a shark bite, and it looks horrific. Blood spurting, screaming, a lifeless body dragged out to sea... In life, sharks are caught by the hundreds in fishing nets, sorted, fins cut from their bodies, and then discarded back into the sea so that they sink to their death at the bottom of the ocean, unable to breathe because they can't swim. Where's that horror movie? What Jaws portrays is three men doing a seemingly noble thing by taking on a bloodthirsty eating machine terrorizing a peaceful community. What it's really detailing, though, is a fight between an animal that just so happens to be amongst the apex predators of the ocean being eradicated from the planet because it makes humans afraid to go into the water, and a federal government so preoccupied with upholding its own power that it abandons its citizens. Had Jaws popped up under the sand, tootled over to the local yacht club, and eaten all the patrons in the dining room, maybe I'd feel differently. But a carnivorous animal that lives in the ocean can't be blamed for eating something it was more than likely just checking out. That's right, most shark attacks aren't attacks at all. When a shark, particularly a great white shark, wants to eat something, they charge up from underneath it, smack it high into the air, trying to stun it, and then eat it when it lands. This is not how most shark attacks happen on humans. Sharks use their mouths and teeth to investigate things because they don't have arms. They nibble. Because they're so big, their nibble can be fatal, but it doesn't change the fact that a human being on a surfboard is a strange thing for a shark to encounter. Just as strange as it would be to find a shark at a lumberyard. The misplaced anger on sharks because humans don't control our environment is exacerbated when looking at Jaws through another very visible theoretical lens, right? Many texts have used a psychoanalytic read to break down the terror we feel about sharks and Jaws. Namely, it's this one. 
that the giant V-shaped monster is a symbol of men's anxieties about vaginas and their ability to castrate and emasculate men. Right? This is a very feminist read of Jaws. In her book, Sexual Personae, Camille Paglia wrote, The tooth vagina is no sexist hallucination. Every penis is made less in every vagina, just as mankind, male and female, is devoured by Mother Nature. So that's right, folks. Jaws is a bloodthirsty vagina swallowing men whole one by one. Or at least, the monster represents the manifestations of those anxieties. The theoretical term for this is called vagina dentata. If you've seen the horror film Teeth, you know something about this. In general, castration anxiety, as Freud coined it, is the conscious or unconscious fear of losing all or part of the sex organs, or the fear of having one's genitalia disfigured or removed to punish sexual desires of a child. This anxiety appears in the phallic stage of early childhood development, and the anxiety or fear is hypothesized to be a sense of fear from the parent with matching genitalia. In Freud's world, children have unconscious sexual desires for parents. I don't have enough time or breath in my lifetime to discuss why I disagree with this, so let me just say this. Regardless of what I think, we have nearly a century of discourse that ingrains this notion into the stories we tell ourselves. That it's children's desires and not those in power over them that generate the anxiety. Thus, we have this story. When those born with penises see other people without penises, they fear theirs will be taken away. Castration anxiety can also refer to being castrated symbolically, like when a person assumes, you know, power, feels inadequate with that power, or vulnerable, or insignificant in some way. If you look at the SS Orca, you'll see a lot of emasculation. Now, warning, I'm about to unload a lot of inference to phallic symbols, and when I say unload, that pun is absolutely intended. Let's look at Quint, the Alpha. He is a gaping wound of regret and guilt. His entire gear his entire, let me try that again, his entire character defect is not asking for help. A deeply stereotypical masculine trope. When Brody radios for help, Quint grabs his trusty wooden stick and smashes the radio. His rod will be the only rod to hook this fish. Now let's at Hooper, the youngest of the bunch, is a rich kid playing scientist. When it's his turn to get in the cage and tussle with the swimming vagina monster, he panics literally dropping his scientific stick meant to penetrate the shark with a poison to kill it and save the day. That's right. All he had to do was stick it in, and when the going got tough, Hooper got soft. And then there's Chief Brody, the police chief on an island who's afraid of water. In Peter Benchley's original novel, Hooper has an affair with Chief Brody's wife, so he's quite literally emasculated. In the movie, instead of making him a cuckold, He's turned into a scaredy cat who can't protect his family. He's inadequate. He, quote-unquote, needs a bigger boat. This film is waving the white flag of the tormented 70s male in so many ways. With the economic downturn, the Vietnam War, the rise of civil rights, women's rights, and LGBTQ rights, men were having a time. PTSD from soldiers returning home was rampant, and for the first time in American history, men were experiencing feelings in public. Also in the 70s, psychology combined cognitive and behavioral strategies and introduced CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. 
this form of talk therapy analyzed thoughts, feelings, and behaviors in conjunction with one another. Chances are, if you've been in therapy for depression, anxiety, BPD, or BDP, then you've experienced this form of treatment. Men were finally feeling their feelings, and those feelings, at least those projected on the movie screens, were ones of significant insecurity and anxiety about their emasculation. So we've looked at Jaws through clearly a socioeconomic read and a feminist read. There's one more I want to draw your attention to, and if you asked Greta Thunberg, I bet you she'd see this one quite clearly. Jaws is a story about how humans try to control every aspect of their environment. Raping, pillaging, and polluting everything in our natural world. You know, Mother Nature. The problem with Jaws is that more and more people keep swimming in the ocean without accepting the risk of doing it. Instead, they capture animals and enclose them in glass for us to admire from a safe distance. You know, they keep small ones around to commodify snorkeling and scuba diving, build iron cages to view sharks from a distance, which probably only confuses them more. We don't respect that we're part of a larger ecological system, and without guns and dynamite and traps, we're not at the top of it. So what do we do instead? We make movies that inspire fear in people, placing the blame on the animal. We take no responsibility on ourselves whatsoever. And if you're wondering, how did I get to this conclusion? Let's just take one more final note from the movie. Great white sharks have one single natural predator in the animal kingdom. An animal so fierce that if a shark sees it in its territory, it will not return for years. Okay? Years. That animal is an orca whale. Do you remember the name of the boat? that Quint takes out with the guys on those two fateful days at sea? Yeah, it was the SS Orca. It's quite clear who wants to be at the top of the food chain, even if they have to cheat to stay there. That concludes this week's episode of Jaws. I'll be back next week with a look at the 1990s thriller Basic Instinct, when the world was introduced to Sharon Stone and the infamous Catherine Trammell. Thank you very much for listening to The Stories We Tell, a podcast about the way we read movies. Until next time, I'm your host, Casey Bacamini, saying please watch carefully.